0: The first rotation is always great. Everybody always knows the first rotation, but it's after that, that I think you see a lot of mid-level, maybe not as great defensive teams are now lost on that second and third pass rotation. If you're able to rotate great as a team, I think that's special. If you can see a defensive team rotate and everybody knows where to be, knows which pass to take, knows which passing lane is coming next, knowing who to collapse down on, those are special defensive teams. Those are the teams that win championships.
1: Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former All-American out of Valparaiso, and current Basconia forward in the ACB and EuroLeague, Alec Peters. Alec is here today to discuss competitive versus efficient practices, the ins and outs of pick and pop action, and we talk Game prep and tough actions to guard during the always fun start, sub, or sit. This
2: episode is brought to you by our partners at Fast Model Sports. Their Fast Draw playbook software is a great resource for coaches to build and organize their plays and drills. We use Fast Draw on a daily basis to create and share featured playbooks in our Sunday morning newsletter. And along with Fast Draw, we use Fast Scout with our teams
1: for detailed scouting reports, key stats, to share video with players and
2: staff. Listeners of our podcast can now receive 15% off all fast model products when they use the code SGPOD15. That's 15% off all fast model products with the code SGPOD15.
1: Visit slappingglass.com for more information today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Alec Peters. All right. We are really excited to be joined now by Alec Peters. Alec, thanks so much for making the time for us, for staying up late and talking some hoops. We're excited to have you.
0: And Patrick, man, I'm excited to be here. Thank you guys for allowing me to talk what I can share whatever I can on the game and whatever question you guys have. I can't wait to discuss it. It's going to be a fun thing we got going on here.
1: Absolutely. And we're going to talk a lot of on the court, off the court stuff. And we want to dive in though with competitive practices. I know that you've been a part of a lot of really competitive, highly competitive practices from your time in college, NBA, G League, the League, and you've played for some terrific coaches. And we want to start with for you, What are some of the elements that over the years, when you've been involved in a really highly competitive, but also efficient practice where you feel like you get stuff done, what are some of the elements that go into that as a player that you feel are most beneficial?
0: So there's competitive practices, and then there's productive practices. Sometimes the competition or sometimes a coach wants their players to just come in and beat the hell out of each other. Like you get nothing out of that type of stuff. So the difference between a competitive and a productive practice to me is a productive practice is where you can come in and not use five on five as a punishment type thing. Use five on five to work on what it is you need to work on, whether that be defensively, offensively focused is up to how your team is doing. But for me as a player, anytime the practice got competitive to where it was like, it became a problem. You almost got worse as a team after that. Like I get it. You want your players to To have those days. Like every coach wants their team to have those days where they get fired up, they fight each other, whatever. You want to bring that out of your team. But I think you can do that productively. If that makes sense, you don't always need to bring them in and be like, okay, we played horrible. So let's beat the crap out of them. Let's play five on five. Let's not call fouls. Let's be physical. It's like that, you know, that kind of has a reverse effect. And and I think that a productive practice is something where you get the most out of your competitive practices. And I will say this as a player coaches are smart. The one way to keep a player engaged in a practice is make it competitive to play five on five. If you drill them to death, you're going to lose their focus. And all of a sudden they're going to be checked out thinking about the girl they're talking to the day. Like what keeps guys engaged and what keeps the juices flowing for practice is playing five on five. Now there's a you know law of diminishing returns. How long do you go before you start to hit that downslope of now the five on five is unproductive? Guys are making sloppy mistakes and not getting anything out of it. As a coach, you got to gauge that. And I will say the biggest pet peeve as a player is when you have a competitive practice but you don't keep score. You got yeah. to keep the score. And I've had coaches I've played for it, where we play five on five in practice and there's no rhyme or reason as to what you know defense gets a stop. You are going off. There's no reason to it. The coach is just again. Again, again, run the play again. You just, you have no, as a player, you're like, okay, why are we doing this? What's the reason? Those are kind of my thoughts on competition and practices. I think that, you know, in Europe, especially, I mean, Patrick, you can attest to this, like it's an everyday thing. You know, you never really have a day where you come in and you're not going to play, you're not going to tape up, you're not going to, you know, get at each other a little bit. The guy, the coaches that can do it productively have the more successful teams.
2: Alec, staying on keeping players engaged and the competition, when you do maybe like three-on-three or maybe some transition drills, does that need to be competitive or is it more as a player, are you thinking like, you know, we're going to give it our effort, let's get through it and get to the five-on-five?
0: One-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, they serve a purpose, absolutely. I think it's all something you need to learn how to play defense one-on-one, individually one-on-one. Obviously, you need to have a score two-on-two, three-on-three. There's all great teaching points that can be done. From a competitive standpoint, those things, the juices for the player get kind of just because I scored on a teammate, you know, like they go at each other, they can find the competitiveness within each other. I think as soon as you go five on five and you throw in those extra bodies, you can have one player, two players that, you know, don't touch the ball for 10 minutes of practice. And that's what disengages guys. And so if you keep scoring the five on five aspect of it, it keeps everybody kind of involved sideline on the court. One on one, two on two, three on three. If you're drilling it, I don't think there's necessarily, you know, the score isn't as important as making them understand why they're doing it. If I understand why I'm doing three on three, full quarter, half the court transition drill, whatever it may be. If I understand what we're doing, then at the end of the day, like every practice ends with five on five. Am I right? You know, there's more to come two on two, three on three. You are like, you just said, like you do have kind of that subconscious. Like, all right let's get to the five-on-five, five. keeping score here isn't going to you know, make or break the practice. So, I mean, helping the players understand why they're doing the two-on-two two and the three-on-three three, I think is more important than keeping score in that area of practice.
1: Alec, as coaches too, we like to have competitive practices and have it where we put players in situations where they're making decisions all the time. And But is there a certain point where as a player during a practice where you don't need every single drill to be Overly competitive, making decisions, but you just kind of need the rote, you know, get your footwork, go through the actions. Or do you prefer every single drill to have some sort of decision making competitive element to it?
0: I would say more importantly, each drill needs to have a level of intensity to it. I wouldn't say it. everything needs competition based. You know, shooting drills, you can say you got to hit a number or we run type of thing. Like that's a competition, I guess you could put on something like that. But I would say there needs to be purposeful intensity. There needs to be some sort of intensity in what you do in practice, because never is there a moment in the game where you can take it slow and taking it slow is for when you're doing your individual work, you're breaking things down, you're starting slow and then you're building up to faster and faster. But, and I think especially in Europe where like you come in, you stretch, you start playing five on five and you kind of miss that throughout the season like you miss that like that engagement of like okay you started with a shooting drill then you warmed up and then you did maybe a transition you worked on a shell like whatever it may be you miss that a little bit as a player through the season it gets lost and maybe you need something like that to sharpen tools and sharpen the focus you know but I do think that there always needs to be a level of intensity
2: sticking with the level of intensity as it applies to warmups and I think there's a school of thought especially in Europe where in the warm up the coach is going to be really demanding and you know, demand precision and execution and get on guys thinking that if they let something slide now, a mistake now, it's going to lead to bigger mistakes, whether it be down the line in practice, or, you know, if he doesn't throw the bounce fast when I tell him to throw the bounce fast, how is he going to listen to me in a game? So as a player, how do you feel? I guess your thoughts on that kind of
0: philosophy and what you want out of a warm-up. I think even back to my AAU days, it might have been my dad, but I think my dad stole this Warm up like you're going to war. You know, it's a little too extreme. I, I get that. And not every player is the same. There's some guys that can come and touch their toes and all of a sudden they're putting their neck on the rim. Like, the, you know, I was never that guy. I always needed to stretch, warm up, get myself going. I need to have a nice sweat going before I even entered into playing. And most of the time, and you know, obviously playing in Europe, Patrick coaching Europe, like it's a huge emphasis. The first 15, 20 minutes of practice, it's like conditioning. It's not even like a warm up. It's like, you know, you're stretching, but like, you're not just stretching. You're, you're running in between stretches you know, the drills you do, like, even though you haven't like necessarily fully warmed up yet, they expect you to go like at the best speed you possibly can go at. There's a good logic to that. I think it gets taken to the extreme, definitely. But there is a purpose to like, when the, like I am a true believer that teams perform better in practice and in games, and you warm them up and you get them to where they're breathing a little bit and they're sweating. You want your players, the ball gets tipped, like you want them to be engaged in the ball. You want their cuts to be sharp. You, want, you, know, you don't want to take that time. The teams that take that time to you know, warm up throughout the game, those are the older teams, the guys that have been together for a long time that have the natural chemistry. But most of the time you're dealing with teams that, you know, you have younger players or guys that are new. It's like you need them to be engaged 100%, like ready to go, sweating, warmed up by the time that ball is tipped and ready to play, especially in practice too.
1: Alec, kind of flipping a little bit from competitive practices, but staying with the theme of competition, you're you know in the League, and you're in a position where you and your teammates are constantly battling and competing with each other for spots on the floor, for spots on rosters. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to trying to beat out others for playing time on the floor in one of the most competitive leagues in the world?
0: Yeah. A lot of it happens in preseason. I will say that. I I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for competition because you do play so much in practice in the preseason, sometimes twice a day, you know, leading up to games, you might have three or four practices before a game you're going to have a lot of, but I do think towards the middle of the season, you know, kind of like a little bit locked in, you may not have as much wiggle room. You know, if a player gets injured and you step into that and you play well, now, all of a sudden, like this coach is thinking to you is like, okay, I need to find the minutes for this guy. And that more than likely they'll expand the rotation, then just cut somebody out and replace them. You know, but I played on teams before where, man, I felt like For three weeks in a row, I killed it in practice. You know, went through that stretch and didn't see the court, you know, maybe five minutes in the game. It's just, it really depends on the coach and, you know, his plan, his thinking. But more of that happened the preseason. The preseason will decide whether or not you're kind of cemented into that, especially, you know, in Europe and Euroleague. The veteran players, they sometimes take the preseason and they're, you know, maybe in La La Land or wherever else. But once the season starts, they turn it on. But for younger guys, especially the preseason when you really got to kind of work your way in there um, in practice and, and you do. You know, it, I think there's good, healthy competition to having positional players be competitive. It raises the level. I think, you know, I think back to when I was playing in Turkey, Chris Singleton, me and him were, you know, both playing the four at Anadolu FS and, and, you know, we would, you know, go out at it each day in practice. Chris had one of the best seasons of his career and, you know, and not to like take the credit for that, but like, man, like I, I go at anybody that's um, whether I'm playing 30 or I'm playing five minutes, I'm the guy that had. That you got to try and beat. And, you know, that's me every day. And I truly think that, you know, I was able to make some people at my position a lot better, had great seasons because I'm a challenging practice player.
1: Alec, if I could follow up on that, when you're in a position where I know you've been in spots where you're the starter, you're the clear guy in a position, but then also where you're fighting for playing time, kind of like you mentioned, your approach to, like you said, to practice, you're going to be competitive, but then also maybe conversations you might have with coaches to try to figure out how you might be able to find more time on the floor.
0: You know, when you're a coach, you don't walk into practice thinking like I'm going to pick on this guy, right? Like I want his day to be miserable. I mean, I, I, you know, as a coach, I wouldn't be like that. I'm sure. I don't know about you guys, but you're not walking into practice like I. I can't wait to pick on this guy today, but it's been difficult when you're playing to go to those stretches where you're not playing a whole lot. And you're in that limbo area of like, do I go talk to the coach? Like, who can I, like, do I talk to my teammates? Like, you know, you're kind of in a weird spot because like, you don't want to go talk to the coach and make it seem like you're bitching and complaining. You don't want to you know complain to your teammates because then it makes it sound like you're not a team player. So man, I, I always err on the side of man, like try to talk to the coach, man. Coaches at the end of the day, they, you know, If they didn't play, they've they've been around the game long enough to basically understand the game like they played and And, you know, they get that they can't make 15 guys, 13 guys happy. You know, you need to have that, especially in Europe, if there's a language barrier, be as honest as possible. Get as much done in that five-minute conversation as you can. Either he won't understand you or you won't understand him. And nothing can ever be solved by just staying quiet about it. I think you always have to air it out there. And for you, it's going to make yourself feel better. If you're not getting what you think you deserve, you air it out to somebody who has a potential to do something about it, you're just going to feel good knowing that you let it out there. Worst case scenario, you're in the same spot you've been in.
2: I like hearing you talk about, you know, having honest conversations with coaches or with staff members and kind of a quick tangent that I think it's talked a lot about with coaches is like culture and building, you know, obviously communication is a big part of culture. As a player, how much culture do you notice or how much does it play a role? And when you look back on a season and be like, yeah, we were successful because we had this culture. What are the parts that you notice that you think really make an impact in establishing a culture on a team?
0: Setting a good culture, I think, starts from the standards you set as a team, especially as players. I think the players have to be the one that initiated. A coach can talk about, you know, we're going to set a culture. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. The players are the ones that play the game. They're the ones that come to practice. There's 12 to 15 players versus four coaches, five coaches, whatever it may be. The players are the ones that have to initiate that and create that continuity. Culture is continuity. And at the end of the day, it's how can we continue to keep this wheel moving at the same speed in a forward direction, no matter who it is, no matter what the spokes are, no matter who are the people turning the wheel. It's how can we keep it going? It starts with standards. And I think people confuse standards and goals. Goals are something that you either achieve or you don't. And by not achieving goals, sometimes that has a negative little effect on your brain. But if you set standards, which are everyday things that as a player, I understand that I'm going to do the effort that I bring you know, in practice, in games, on the bus, whatever it is, if you have a general understanding of what you are to the team and the standards that you have in place for yourself and the team has in place for you, then that's, I think, what ends up building the blocks of what we all call culture is, you know, knowing that every day guys are coming and they understand what they are, who they are, and what they bring to the team.
2: With these standards, is it something that's going to kind of like work itself out through a preseason as your leaders emerge? Or is it something that let's sit down, have a meeting and talk about like, this is what we expect, you know, a players meeting or, you know, airing it out in an official setting?
0: In Europe, we never really had like coaches bring the players together. This is what we expect. It's got to be player driven because a lot of times players, you know, may not respect the coach. They may not listen to the coach like, but they always will always like care what their teammate thinks and says Culture's got to be player driven. These standards have got to be player driven. you got to have leaders and the guys that need to understand that they're not leaders. They're not alphas. They need to let people lead, and they need to be able to take criticism. They need to be able to have their teammate talk to them, but then still leave the court and go eat dinner with them, you know, I think. That's the general understanding. The makings of a great team are the guys that come to practice, have hard conversations with each other, hold each other to the standards of, you know, this is how we do things. And then still, you know, at the end of the day, have family conversations with each other. I think that's what you create. And the coach, you know, playing into that, then can all of a sudden fall in line and understand the standards. And he can kind of set his own standards that he wants as well. But, you know, before you set goals, before you set, you know, this is what our team wants to achieve. This is what I want our team to look like. You got to have the standards in place, the everyday, the routines, the, you know, the everyday things that make your team successful.
1: Alec, kind of moving now onto the court and you're someone that at your size, 6'9", 6'8", can step out and you've been a shooter all your career. And one of the things we love to talk to you about is the pick and pop reads, footwork, second actions, things that as you're running through a screen and then playing from that, that you've developed over time. And to start on that is the decision to stay and set the screen versus slip out early and how you read that as someone that's coming up to uh, to try to pick and pop to make a play.
0: Yeah. So I think uh, everybody likes to say, you know, scouting report based, or they, you know, you should know ahead of time if they're going to switch. Well, sometimes team changes, you know, teams change their scheme, you know, personnel sometimes like to switch. Sometimes they don't like to switch. But I think one of the, the biggest thing I learned is that using your ears is such an underrated thing. When you're running into a scream, like take the time to listen to what the defender guard, you and the defender the ball are saying, you know, if they're saying switch, then all of a sudden, you know, okay. I either got to stay, I got to hit the screen, stay below the screen and roll and make sure the guy's on my back, or I can slip out of it at three point line. I can slip out of it to the basket, or I can stay and set it. And so my guard has the mismatch on the perimeter. Like you, you open your ears a little bit. If you start to hear what they're saying, then all of a sudden you can kind of cue into what you do. And I will say that, like, as a pick and pop or, you know, a guy that plays better off a mismatch in the low post, like, I always prefer when the teams don't switch because then, you know, it catches them in confusion. And then all of a sudden I'm on the backside with a wide open shot. Like, obviously, you know, wide open shots for shooters, that's, you know, hard to come by sometimes. So anytime I can get that, that's great. I like to see also do I have both corners filled or do I, my coming in transition and empty side pick and roll? Like, where is my spacing at? Because a lot of the times that will determine whether or not, you know, I roll to the basket, I short roll, I hit the screen, stay below the screen, whether or not I slip out of it if I have space to do that. You know, a lot of times I'm, I'm seeing, how's the floor developing before I decide what it is I do. And I would say if you have a great point guard who is great at finding the pass, great at finding the open man or breaking down the mismatch. And most of the time with me, 98% of the time they switch, if they don't switch, they messed up. That's just how I've been played the last three years of my career playing basketball. If they don't switch, they messed up. And you know I try to punish that, but who's switching on to me? Is it you know, a guy, I know I I have the mismatch again. Okay. I'm rolling down. If we have enough time on the shot clock, we're going to work around, we're going to get it to me in the low post and I'm going to go to whatever it is. that they trap, kick out, whatever it may be. If I know it's not going to be like a for sure mismatch or whatever, I always try and like give him a little tap to make it act like I'm screening. And then I slip out of it as quickly as possible to kind of create that separation. If you tap him a little bit without making it a moving screen, I'm talking just like you run by him, give him a little brush. Then he doesn't know, do I need to switch? Do I not switch? whatever it may be. But then you also like, well, who's guarding me? If I know a slow-footed four man or somebody's guarding me, I'm holding the screen, setting it nice. And then all I'm doing after that is just spacing the floor. And I'm letting my point guard create all the action after that. I'm letting him break down the four man. They want to trap. Hopefully the ball swings around we get the open shot. But that's, I mean, I know I, you know, kind of went through every single little thing there and threw a lot out there, but that's kind of like, you know, But I will say the one thing if I can't offer anything is, man, use your ears. If you can notice what they're saying in the defense that they're playing, now all of a sudden it narrows it down for what you can do or what you should do.
2: Alec, I'd like to hit back on how you look at the spacing of the court to kind of determine what you will do. And I guess if we can just elaborate a little bit on that, how that spacing changes it. Assuming with whether, especially if it's a reverse screen, a middle screen, or a side ball screen, how does in the team react off of what you do? Like if they see you pop, will that also then change the spacing of your
0: teammates? Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, it's great. And that's, it's going to, it's going to open up an even broader answer for yeah. from me. Probably. <laughs> but no, but spacing is crucial, right? Like spacing is everything on offense. You got both corners filled wing dunker spot for the big man, wherever your philosophy is on spacing, you got to have it. That's first of all, in transition, you got to have spacing. Otherwise nothing's going to work spacing and timing. Right. And I think a lot of times people confuse playing fast for playing efficient. Does that make sense? Yeah, I always try to play efficient. I'm not as fast as everybody, but I try to play efficient. So me sprinting into a ball screen doesn't necessarily mean I'm putting my head down and I'm just gonna go lay the wood to whoever's guarding the ball. It's me like as I'm coming into the ball screen, I'm looking. I'm seeing, okay, do I have a corner fill? Do I have a corner fill? Where's my big at? Is he in the dunker spot? Is he coming? Does he think he's coming into a secondary ball screen? Like, is it a set play? Like, you know, where's my spacing at while I'm running there? I'm not taking off and headed into the screen and then just figuring it out afterwards I I'm, I'm always trying to realize every shooter they're lying to you if they say they don't have a preference on which side they want to you know they do they like catching going left right right left do they like coming off the screen this way that way I think every shooter has their preference mm-hmm. so for me it's all like you know I always want to get to my preference side so most of the time if I'm coming to a flat ball screen right if I'm coming up the middle of the floor and the point guard you know I'm giving him an angle whether I want him to go left or right I'm always going to set the screen or try to set the screen to the side where I know I'm popping to my favorite way to catch and get Mm -hmm. into my shot and hoping that everybody else, the big should always be opposite of me. The corner guy should be ready for his guy. If he stunts up, then he has pass pass to the corner for the shot. But I'm always like, if I'm in a middle ball screen situation, I'm coming from underneath the basket straight on. I'm always trying to set it. If I know I'm going to get the shot, I'm always going to set it to try and get it to my favorite side if that makes sense. And sometimes you have to give that up, knowing that the point guard, whoever you setting the ball screen for is right-hand dominant, left-hand dominant. And you need to you know, keep that in mind. Like, okay, like he's better going left. And then you're, you're thinking about who's guarding me. He has the better mismatch against the guy guarding me. So let me set it to his left hand so that he can beat him. And you start to play a little bit of that game, but for yourself personally, if you know you're the one that's going to get the shot and you're in that situation where you can pick and choose your side, I'm always picking the side that I feel comfortable with that I can get into my shot the best. And, you know, I think, like I said, I think people lie if they say like they don't have a favorite way to shoot. Yeah. So that's kind of yeah. middle ball screen action. So transition as well, if you want to get into that, if you have an empty pick and roll in transition, I think that this is like the kiss of death for a defense. If you play it right, if offense play this the right way, if you are able to, and it depends on where you if your big's trailing, if he's high, is always better than if he can beat you down the floor and he's low. Because if the big's low, then you have that protection under the rim. An empty side transition ball screen, 1-4, it can be very, very deadly. Because most of the times, teams don't like to switch and transition because it gives you 15 seconds, 18 yeah. seconds left on the shot clock to play that mismatch. That's a lot of time for a team to punish that. So a lot of times, they don't like to switch and transition. What most teams like to do, or the teams I've played on, teams I've seen, studied, whatever else, is they like to put the foreman in, in drop defense, and they like to help from the strong side, knowing that they'll just live with that kick-out corner. So in, in transition as a foreman, a lot of times I'm setting the screen. I'm setting it so that my point guard or whoever has the ball in transition can pinch that gap, and hopefully that foreman has dropped deep enough to where I know I have an early shot on the back side. Or if I set the screen and the guard is late, I can roll to the basket, and it's two-on-one, and you're hoping that the big is staying high so the big is not clogging the paint. Yeah. If that makes if you're able to picture that. Yep. Anytime I can get an empty side transition pick and roll, I always try to set the screen because if they do switch, then great. You got 18 seconds to play the mismatch.
1: You mentioned about going back to the middle ball screen, about trying to set up the angle and which you're going to set for the point guard or when you're going to pop and working with your point guards and understanding when you might flip a screen, when you're going to change the angle, when you would rescreen. How much of that is read based versus maybe a call versus just you guys knowing how to play with each other in that middle pick and roll?
0: It's very helpful if you know how to play with each other. It's always better if you know how to play with each other, right? We had a set play when I played, like, again, going back to playing in Turkey and playing with Shane Larkin, who had, you know, the most ridiculous season of any European guard ever that year. And we had a set play where literally he would take the ball at the almost half court line whenever they'd let him catch it at, like, middle of the floor. Four man would come up and you just literally, like, zigzag. Like, you didn't know what angle you were going to set it in. And he was just so fast that he would just take the ball, rip by, and he would beat everybody and go to the rim because everybody just got so confused. Like you were literally like, do I set it right? Do I set it left? And you know, he likes to pull up going left better. And so like more often than not, you would set it going left because again, if you're in that situation and you know, your guard is the guy that has the advantage here, you're going to set it for his tendency, not necessarily for me to get the shot. I'm going to set it, you know, so that he has the better advantage. Like I said before, if I know I have the better advantage, I'm going to set it to my preferred side to get my shot. But Again, knowing your teammate for sure, but I do think you can design it. And changing the angle is such a great, great tool to use because, you know, even if teams are switching, it still is creating confusion. You know, what side do I switch on? And then the guard guarding the ball is always going to get caught up on the screen, even if you switch. And now it's up to the screen or not. What do I do after that? Do I roll and try and stay below the screen? Do I pop and get out of the way? Whatever it may be. But changing the angle is always a great tool to use in the middle, pick and roll five or four. I mean, it doesn't matter. I think that it's always going to create Confusion and the guard, especially, is going to get caught way behind the play. You're going to have an advantage.
1: Just one quick follow up to the change of the angle. What are you reading when you're going to change the angle? Is it the defender's bottom foot? Is it your offensive player? Who are you looking at?
0: Yeah, I think if you have a great offensive player, if you have a great guard on offense, most defenses are going to shade him one way or the other, right? They're going to, you know, scout his tendency. They're going to say, we want to push him left, we want to push him right. You, as a player, you're like, all right, well, if they want to push him left because they don't want him to go right, how can I get him to go right? And, you know, it it may be as simple as me getting there quick enough to where he has a chance to snake the screen. If my defender is a little bit out of place, if you started with like a, a, two man pin down for four, two man pin down for five to put the defender out of place. So now all of a sudden you're running into a high pick and roll with the defender out of place. And now he can snake to his right hand, or it's as much as knowing, okay, they're pushing him left. If I go and start, like I'm going to set the screen for him to go left, but then I change the angle for him to go to his right. The defender is going to be pushing him left. The guy guarding me is going to try and switch off of his right hand because I'm setting the screen for him to go right. Now, any basketball player in the world, I don't care if you're right or left-hand dominant, can beat that defender to the basket in a straight line drive. If you force him one way and the screen's not there, your help's not there, you're going to beat him. And I think you know that's where If you have a great guard or somebody that's being played to one side of the floor, that's where I think changing the angle comes in really, really handy is because now you can create that where your defender's thinking you're setting the screen one way, his teammate's setting him up to go the other way. And now he has all the space in the world to go that way. You know, even if he is being forced that way.
2: Alec, I like to follow up with Kind of your footwork technique when you're popping to your preferred side. So after you set that screen, how do you like to roll into the space or get into the space? Is it kind of catching over the shoulder or the old traditional reverse pivot back pedal? You
0: know, what is your footwork? And when you're going to your preferred side, when I set the screen, if I'm setting the screen. I'm coming to a standstill. I'm setting the screen. I'm always staying face to the ball. I'm rolling out of it. I'm letting the defender kind of roll into my body a little bit. I'm setting the screen. I'm rolling out. I'm always keeping my eyes on my point guard because he may quick, short, roll me on the bounce pass and I need to, you know, head towards the basket. Or if he plays it late, I'm I'm rolling out of it. I'm watching. I'm sliding. I'm sliding away. So when he throws the ball to me, I'm ready for the shot. Now, if I know I'm slipping the screen, it's a sprint and I'm turning my head, you know, as quickly as possible to try and find the ball. But if I'm setting the screen, I like to roll out of it. Honestly, like it's the same concept as like if someone has an ugly jump shot, if they shoot it 10,000 times, it goes in whatever you don't do. If you practice it one way or the other, you know, you just got to be really good at doing it the way you want to do it. But for me personally, if I'm picking and popping, I like to go to like the left wing, left side. Cause I like to, I kind of do it unconventionally. I like sprinting out of it into a slip and then end up going right, left. My left leg is my, is my last foot down. I've always been like, when I shoot off screens, I like coming out, going right, left. That's just, it's always been like, I pull up better going left when I left leg plants last. Um, That's just how I always, I've gotten a lot better as a pro coming off the other way, curling into like a little fade jump shot going left, right. But for me going right, left, left is my last plant leg. That's always been like the comfort way for me. So when I go into a pick and pop, I'm picking, I set the screen, I roll out of it. And I'm not bringing my right leg back just to bring it forward. I'm I'm basically staying in the same plane. I'm going right, left, you know, boom, boom, instead of bringing the right leg in at the last moment. I think as soon as you get your feet down, then your shot's ready. So I'm always like, as soon as I catch the ball, if my feet aren't down, if I still have to take that last step, I better be wide open. Otherwise, defender is going to be on me. I'm not going to get a clean look.
2: Staying on this pop, my next question is making reads because i think i would imagine it has to be an adjustment because you know when you drive past shoot most of the times the closeouts are coming you know at your face now on the pop you're assuming the stunts and the helps are coming more from your peripheral so how have you worked and got better at just understanding the reads and
0: what to do next i always err on the side and this is you know total shooter mentality shooting the ball if i'm popping and I have a defender, I know it's going to stun at me. Unless they fully commit and make me put the ball in the deck, I'm shooting the ball. I get my shot off really quick. So like it's him being one step away and stunning to me isn't going to deter me from getting my shot off. Clearly. Yeah. For some guys, that half second is all the difference in the world. Now they need to make that extra pass. But I think you see too many swing swings go wrong where the defender's stunting in the middle and you see the guy all of a sudden hold it. Like he, he wants to shoot it and, you know, either pass fakes and gets into a shot, or it throws the pass fake, gets tipped, goes out of bounds, because the defender just has him caught in between. Now, there's only so many situations where it's that in between. Now, if it's obvious you get the ball, you know, a defender is way closer to you than he is to that, you know, the corner guy or wherever else, that next pass, that extra pass, obviously try to get it there. But to me, unless you fully commit to me, I'm shooting the basketball. Even I even work on the whole pass fake. Okay, he didn't go for the pass fake. I can still get into my shot if I'm there. If I worked on it, I know... You know, I caught the ball. Someone's stunned. I pass fake to kind of get the guy to back off a little bit, and then I can get into my shot. Like I think that's important for guys that are good at pick and pop is to work on that. Work on the jab step. Work on the taking your focus off the rim for a second, and then bringing it back to the rim to shoot the ball.
2: When they do switch and you go into the post, are you looking to bully him? Are you looking to get to a spot and shoot over him? How many moves do you work on to punish a mismatch in the post? I've simplified
0: it. I really have. In college, I had everything in the world, left hook, right hook, up and under, whatever it may be. I think as a pro, I tried to simplify as much, partly because not that I don't have the same like drive work ethic, come to practice hour early, stay an hour late work, but like you get smarter and you're like, okay, how can I officially work on things in my game to where I'm not, you know, spending so much time at practice. I can rest my body. I can get ready for, you know, you're playing more, you're you're playing more demanding games and things like you start to, have your routine moves that you work on. And for me, like getting to a baseline fadeaway, it's just a matter of make or miss for me. You know, there's not one, you know, especially a smaller defender, there's not one defender that's going to be able to contest it. There's not one defender that's going to be able to keep me from getting that shot off. And I think it's make or miss for me. So it's just a matter of, you know, can I get close enough to the basket to where it's that spot? And I think when you have a smaller defender, obviously you want to get the deepest catch as you can, but that's not always possible. But I would say that for me it's it's one or two dribbles because as soon as you get to three, four dribbles, that defender is either going to, you know, try and sneak around you, poke the ball, or someone's going to collapse down on you. And honestly, my favorite thing in the world when I have a mismatch is if they double me, I mean, we're going to get something open out of it. You know, so I'm almost like, you know, they switch, I get the ball, I wait. I'm like, please, please come double me because this is, you know, this is pick apart. This is just pick your poison at this point. I think you do see a lot in Europe though, and you'll see a lot of guys get the mismatch. And they'll back them down from the perimeter, you know, it'll take 10 dribbles for them to get there. It's used and it's effective. And that's something that I'm starting to work on. And I'm starting to, you know, use a little bit more Is okay, what if I can't do my one, two dribble moves into my fade away, my shot fake, good to the free throw line, you know, or bury a guy, spin, move, wow. hook, whatever it may be like, you know, can you keep the ball and not, you know, risk a turnover or risk, you know, not being able to make a play out of it. But I think when you get the switch and you go to the low post, um, another thing too, again, you know, we could be here till four in the morning talking about this stuff. I would say as a team, when you get a mismatch and you get a low post, it's not always the best thing to try and like spend 10 seconds trying to find that mismatch. I think bringing the ball back to that side, if you have it there, great. If not, let's get into something else. Let's play the perimeter mismatch. Let's try and get a close out on the other side or something. That's what the game is now. You know, it's how can you create the advantage? How can you create the mismatch and how can you exploit it?
1: We're going to transition now to a segment that we play with every guest here on the show called Start, Sub, or Sit. And we're going to give you three different choices around a topic. And you'll start one, you'll sub one, and then you'll bench one, you'll sit one. And we can have a fun little discussion around your answer. So this first one has to do with shooting. And I know throughout your career, you're a great shooter, always have been. And the theme of it is quick release on your shot. And what's the most important thing in having a quick release when shooting the basketball? So start, sub, or sit these three different ways to do that. Option one is just being shot ready with your IQ, knowing where your shot's going to come from, knowing how to rotate into space, just understanding where that shot is going to come from first and foremost. Option two, having efficient and tight shot mechanics. So just the mechanics of your shot and how quick it is. And then third option is your footwork getting your feet down, getting your feet planted?
0: Start with the footwork. You know, you can be in the right spot. You can have the great shoulder up mechanics and everything. But if you don't have your feet down, if you're staggered, if you're off in the direction, you know, guys, when they practice shooting, how do they practice it? They practice it with the right foot in front or left. Perfect mechanics, follow through, no defense. Like, you know, if you start the very basic part of not having your feet ready. If you don't have like your footwork or your your feet down, ready to shoot, you're not going to get your shot off quick enough. And you're not going to get your shot off on balance. I would say sub the mechanics because you can't get your shot off quick enough without working on your mechanics. I think you can bench the whole idea of knowing where your shot's coming. I wish I knew where my shot was coming from all the time. You know, I'd put up twenty threes a game if I knew where my shot was coming from. <laughs> you know, what I mean? that's an exaggeration. Obviously, you do know I'm in the corner on this play. If the ball comes to me, I'm shooting it from the corner. I can't predict some things. But I think, you know, if you don't have those two, you don't have the proper practice and mechanics of how to get your shot off quick, then I don't think it matters where you get the ball. It's irrelevant. If you don't practice getting your shot off quick, it's not going to look good for you in the game.
1: Absolutely. Alec, my follow-up, it's kind of with both the footwork and the mechanics is just how you continue to get quicker with your release, getting your feet down quicker and getting your shot off quicker, but without rushing it.
0: So I played for Bryce Drew in college, right? And he was probably the most instrumental guy at Valpo for me, like progressing me as a shooter and not just a guy that could hit an open shot. Like he put like a rack of balls next to me and be like, okay, I don't care how many you make. I just want you to get these nine shots off in a matter of how I forgot how many seconds you put up there. He's like, I just want you to get it off. Yeah. Like, get it off. Like, you know, and in the beginning, I'm like taking the ball and I'm just like, you know, throwing it at the hoop. Right. And, and it's like making no sense to me. But eventually you start to figure out that, like, you know, as a shooter, you, everybody that shoots basketball, you always bring it to that one consistent point before you release the ball. So if I'm going to get my shot off quick, it's how quickly can I get it to that point? And then from there, it's like everything you've ever practiced. You got to be like, everybody has that one point before they release the ball. Some guys, it's front of their face. Some guys, you know, it's lower, some guys it's higher, but how can I get it to that point as quick as possible? Then from there, it's just, okay, muscle memory. What did I practice? Bring it to that point as quick as possible. And then it's up and out of my hands, but it's, you know, where can I get it to that one point? My feet set. And then wherever I catch the ball, if it's low, high, if it's all over the place, if I need to get the shot off quick, how can I get it to that point as quick as possible?
2: Staying on that one point, have you found that you've had to change it as you've progressed up levels from college to Europe, to the Euro League? Maybe you haven't had to change it, but is there maybe a point where, you know, to be an elite shooter, you got to at least be here. Like, is there a bar?
0: You got to be able to catch the balls in all different ways from all different types of passes. And you got to be able to get it off and have it be a 40% plus, plus shot. You can't just be a good pass shooter. I think that, you know, more often than not, you've got to randomize your practice as much as possible. I think you're seeing that trend in player development lately. Everything is randomized. You're not just, you know, coming in the gym and you, you're working on the cones and doing whatever you're seeing guys like actually throw bodies at each other and saying, okay, predict what happens when I do this. And I think that's really good, especially when it comes to shooting. It's not just like, okay, go to the corner, make five. Everything's a great pass. There's time for that. I think that's great for, you know, rhythm purposes, for mechanic work, confidence, whatever it may be. But when you're doing like you know a one-on-one player development session, if you can't catch the ball, like off jumping in the air, bringing it down, and then setting your feet and shooting, then you got to get there to be a great shooter. You got to be able to catch the ball in all different ways: stepping with your left foot, stepping with your right foot, stepping behind, you know, turning towards the bat. Like you have to practice in every which way that you can conceivably possibly think that you could be put in a position to shoot the ball. And you got to just do it. You got to rep it. And that's something that a huge focus for me because, you know, it's minimal footwork sometimes. And I always call it the hot corner. The corner is always the spot where you get your shot off the quickest you have because the shorter closeout, shorter distance, especially as a shooter, you're going to get respected a lot more than the defenders on you. If you get it in the corner, to get your shot off. It's got to be wicked fast. Like you have to practice that, but I'll just always pick a spot. And every shot is different. How I move my legs. I may start with my back to the basket and I jump around my feet are set and I shoot, I may step with my left leg behind me or to the side of me. And most of the time as a right-handed shooter, your right leg, you always want it to be, you know, your last one. You got to just work on different awkward movements with your body and then getting your shot off quick doing it. It makes everything fall into place in in the game when things can kind of get a little bit more regular for you. It's the age old, you know, practice things faster than than how you play because when you play, Mm. you become more comfortable.
2: Moving along, our next one is pick and rolls at certain spots on the floor that are hardest to guard from a team perspective that will stress the team defense the most. And we hit on it a little bit, but for the sake, let's say it's a 1-5 pick and roll. So the flat top ball screen, the empty side ball screen, or what we're seeing now a lot with those reverse short angle screens.
0: I will say the hardest pick and roll to cover as a defense is a pick and roll that's inside the three-point line. I think anytime you can get a pick and roll as low as possible, it just puts the defense at mercy because like, you don't know, especially if you have a good dive guy, a good dive guy can always, you know, get to the rim. It's a short lob pass and it's a finish. If you have a V action where the guard catches off the elbow and you go into a one five pick and roll, I think that might be one of the hardest things to guard because not only that, but then a guard has a short shot, not just a three point pull up jump shot. He's got a 15 foot pull up jump shot. If you don't guard it correctly, you know, going back to, you know, what's the most difficult as a team to guard, guarding a guard that has space you have a big guy a big big guy who has to play and drop you can't get him out of the paint because you know that's just not helpful to him not helpful to the team and you have a high ball screen in the middle of the floor and you're just at the mercy of what that guard does now he's coming downhill with a full head of steam you're basically relying on your five men to be your first line of defense well you know the guard that got screened is now out of the play you're now playing five on four with all kinds of space in the world. You see it a lot in the NBA. You know, when Damian Lillard's being guarded at half court and they go set a high pick and roll for him, you're at his mercy because now you have to respect his jump shot off the pick and roll. But at the same time, he's fast enough to go by the five minutes. So anytime you see a high pick and roll happen and the guard's not able to get under the screen and get back into the play and stand in front of his man, he gets clipped, you're playing five on four. And it's just a matter of, you know, how do we scramble and recover out of it?
2: No, quick tangent here, and you talk about this, and you know I've been seeing a lot lately, a lot of like those quick shows, or teams are being more aggressive on the ball, and then you'll see the NBA still predominantly drop. How do you value the mid-range shot in Europe? In your opinion?
0: Yeah, I think you know Europe's always going to be steps behind. Everybody in the NBA gets so like caught up with like the latest and greatest, right? They want like the newest way, the newest way to play. You know, how can we be the most innovative and be the first to do this new stuff? So like the whole negating the mid-range shot was in theory, I think, you know, a cool idea. Like, yeah, it makes sense. You know, if you score more threes, like you're going to score more points, you have a better chance of winning, but did the Rockets win the championship? No. Now there's a flip side of that. I don't think that you get the mid-range shot without being really good at paint twos and threes. I think the mid-range shot should always be kind of your mm-hmm. third option. But if your a team is really good at getting paint twos in your team, that's really good at creating three-point jump shots. By all means, like the mid-range is going to become a, a way easier, more open shot for you because teams are going to start to take away your paint twos. They're going to start taking away your threes. The mid-range is going to be what they give you. can be a very important weapon offensively, especially if you have guys that can create that shot, guys that can get you that shot. And I think you see it a lot more in Europe because the guards like are used to that shorter distance, that less space kind of shot. You know what I mean? I always think like, and this is, you know, getting a little bit off topic, but guards in Europe are always like, like good point guards are always like really special to me because they play with less space. They have to mm-hmm. navigate less space and find the right pass, find the you old know, create for their offense. Like, you know, in the NBA, there's, there's all kinds of space in the world. Like, you know, sometimes watching the game, it's like, you know, I, I could play point guard sometime. Nah, I'm not, I'm not saying I could play point guard in the NBA, but it's like, you know what I mean? The yeah. truck out there with, How much space there is, like the good guards in Europe that play in that tight space area, those are the ones that are like truly special to me that they're able to navigate the tight space and find the right pass. I'll go with you down this tangent.
2: I see in Europe with being more aggressive on the pick and rolls, and also with the prevalence of the next defense, are teams more willing to get in rotations defensively to be aggressive? Where I think previously it was like, let's try to avoid rotations. And now I feel it's like, let's be aggressive and get in rotations and just be good at them.
0: Yeah. So I think the best thing you can do in an offense is create closeouts, right? It's, you know, pick and roll, throw it out. Now, all of a sudden you have a closeout happening. You attack the closeout or you shoot. If it's a short closeout, you attack the closeout. Someone rotates over, you kick to the next guy. He attacks whoever closes out or he has the shot. Like creating closeouts is basically like, as an essence, like what you want to do as an offense right now, I don't think it gets practiced enough defensively teams practice rotations enough because the first rotation is always great. Everybody always knows the first rotation. Someone double teams, the guard on the pick and roll. We throw out to the big on the short roll. The guy knows he has to rotate, take him. The guy next to him knows he rotates and takes the first pass out, but it's after that. That I think you see a lot of mid-level, maybe not as great defensive teams are now lost on that second and third pass rotation. And I think that that kind of doesn't get worked on enough is if you're able to rotate great as a team, I think that's special. If you can see a defensive team rotate and everybody knows where to be, knows which pass to take, knows which passing lane is coming next, knowing who to collapse down on. I think you can be as aggressive as you want to be. If you know your rotations, if a team knows who they have to help, who has to help after him. I think being as aggressive as possible on defense is always going to be the way to go, but you have to make sure if you have a team that can't do that, that doesn't know their rotation, maybe you have some guys that get lost and kind of the chaos of it all, then by all means, don't be as aggressive. But like, I think the teams that can be aggressive, that can play next defense and know their rotations after that, those are special defensive teams. Those are the teams that win championships.
1: Alec, our next start sub sit for you and this is themed deceptive actions that are difficult to guard. So in all these situations, you would be either guarding the ball or or someone in the screening area here. So deceptive actions, a fake dribble handoff, a slip or a ghost out of a pick and roll, or an off-ball slip. So a flare slip or a pin down screen to a slip. So some type of off-ball slip action. So start, sub, sit, start being the most difficult in your opinion to guard.
0: Wow, oh, I love all those actions. That's why it's like really hard for me to, The hardest one is the ball screen, for sure. Because I think even like you could have some smartest players in the world guarding, but if if you're not on the same page as your guard or whoever's you know being screened, you're screwed. You could have two players on the ball. You could have two players going with the screener. And then all of a sudden, it's just, you know, it it becomes a chaos after that. So start that for sure. That's the most difficult. I think the other two you said were like a flare screen slip and then a, like an off screen
1: Yeah. So the other two was like just anything off screen with a slip and then, but then the other one was a fake dribble handoff. So keep on a DHO.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Keep up. That should be third. That should be the bench one. Because I think you get caught on a fake DHO. I think you're just sleeping. You're not locked in. And then, yeah, the other one is is an odd, because that's tough sometimes, you know, if you got a guard flying off the screen, you know, your defender's late and you want to switch so bad, you want to jump out and help on that so bad. But if you do it too early, you know, the big is going to be wide open your man's going to be wide open Uh, You can get caught a lot doing that with teams that are really good doing off screen. I know Madrid's a team team that's really good using off screen action with, you know, Rudy Fernandez, Fabian Cosser, and those guys. So sometimes, you know, that can get a little bit difficult to read.
1: So my follow-up is on the sit with the fake dribble handoff. And you mentioned, you know, if you get caught on it, basically it's because you're sleeping. So how is the best way in your opinion then to guard a fake DHO? Is it just to give that guy space so your guard can get through and keep him in front?
0: Yeah, space gives you more time to react. I think if you're super aggressive, so that the DHO is pushed farther out, and now all of a sudden he doesn't have like the leverage to turn the corner. But I think if you're just like you know sliding along, thinking like okay, it's DHO guard's going to go under, you know whatever it may be, that then I think you get caught sleeping. Or if you know you back off, knowing the DHO is coming, if you back off at the right time, that gives you more time to react if there is a fake DHO. But then if you back off too much, all he has to do is just set up for a shot, and you know you have a long long closeout. Sure. I think, you know, either way, it's just a preference thing. I think if you get up on it aggressively, that's also going to deter somebody from faking it because, you know, not many guys that go into a DHO, most of them are big guys and not many of them are super comfortable with having a guy straight up playing defense on them.
2: Okay, Alec, our last one for you has to do with game prep in terms of what you feel is, I guess, the most productive or gets you the most kind of game ready. The walkthrough, an individual workout, maybe an hour before you get on the court or the like final 20 minutes right before
0: the game? Yeah, I'll say start the one-hour individual. That's pretty sacred to me. That's like the activation time. We can talk more about that. Yeah, I would say that the 20 minutes before probably sub and then bench the morning walkthrough. If you're waiting until the morning walkthrough to like figure out if you're ready for the game or not, <laughs> that you might as well just not play. Um, you got to be really, I think day, days ahead, you should know <laughs> <laughs> if you're ready or not. I mean, the morning walk is great. I, I do believe in like getting guys moving and sweating a little bit and, and activating your shot and stuff like that. So that way, you are not. I mean, obviously the game's early enough. You don't have that. I think that that is important, but for me personally, like, you know, that doesn't make or break whether or not, you know, game time I'm going to be locked in or focused, but the other two for sure, the hour before activation where I have kind of like my individual time to like get warmed up and get on the court is probably the most important than the 20 minutes before. It's kind of like my meditation, like my, like just kind of deep breath focus, my mental practice, so to speak, before taking the court for a game.
2: My first follow-up is with the 20 minute right before, I mean, you're saying the meditation, but how hard do you like as a team to, I mean, sometimes you'll see teams that, I mean, they're going hard, they're doing slides. They're really, you know, trying to set a tone, I guess. How hard do you like to go in those 20
0: minutes Yeah, I think for me, that 20 minutes, you know, that right before the game starts, for me, it's about, can I get my body in a explosive mindset, if that means. I'm doing a full speed defensive slide both directions to make sure that my right leg and my left leg are both, you know, activated each way. Full speed sprint forward, full speed back back pedal. You know, I'm going to jump in and try and touch the backboard on, on the backboard or rim or something like that to make sure that like my verticality is there. Like I, I'm doing every explosive movement, but like one of each, two of each, making sure that it's just, it's activated, it's ready, that I'm ready to go full speed when the game starts. And I think that, you know, I would tell like younger players warming up for games an hour before, you know, in college, I w- I'd kill myself. I was out there 30 minutes doing like a full on, like everything I could do, workout, ball handling, everything, like just tiring out everything thinking that I was like bettering myself in the game. It's an activation process more than it is a, is a workout. When you're going to play a game, you should think about that hour or that 15 minutes that you get on the court by yourself. How can I prep my body and my mind and my reaction time in a way that's going to, you know, best suit me in the game? Because like, in in all honesty, being fast is great, but those who react faster are always the ones that get it. They're the ones that get to the ball quicker. They're the ones that they get their shot off, you know, whatever it may be, the ones that react faster, that think faster. Those are the guys that you see look faster, you know, being fast isn't always the greatest tool. And so that's what that 15 minutes is. It's an activation period for, you know, can I get my reaction time where I need it to be? It's almost as easy as like taking your eyes off the rim and like having someone toss a ball to you from wherever direction, you don't know where it's coming from, but it's finding that ball in that spot, turning and shooting it it's almost prepping your mind and prepping your body for what you could face in the game. And you don't need to do a ton of it. You just need to do enough of it to where you and your mind feel activated and feel good enough. I mean, I think Steph Curry was the one that kind of coined that term. Of, my warm up isn't like a, I need to make a certain amount of shots or I need to do this. I need to accomplish this. It's an activation process. It's a, you know, how can I put my mind, my body in a place that's ready to play the game?
1: Yeah, Alec, you've mentioned a couple of times about, you know, activating your body and your mind and whatnot. In the pre-game stuff, your mental mindset, what are you preparing mentally for? Say that hour leading up to a game. Are you really thinking about the game, the matchups? Or are you trying to be more free and maybe think about other stuff so your mind is, you know, not overly focused on the game, so you have a good balance?
0: For me, I'm pretty laser focused on the task at hand. And then my wife will tell you I'm a little bit too intense sometimes. Like, it's just, you know, and whatever it, personal problem I'll work on it but no I, I really am and I'm, I'm the day of the game maybe I'm not trying to be so caught up in like okay like you know I'm not going to sit there and lunch and like intensely eat my food because I'm thinking about you know the matchup I have later that night but no, once I get to the gym though man like hour and a half two hours before whenever it may be that I show up at the gym like that's you know that's business time that's you know it's like going to work for me like that's like the time where everything my focus my attention my thoughts uh, need to be geared and driven towards you know what I'm doing you know what it is that I do well and you know, it's not like I'm not sitting there closing my eyes and like mentally picturing myself taking somebody one-on-one and things like that. You know, it's just constant reminders and, you know, self-talk and, you know, trying to be positive with yourself and like self-tell yourself like, you know, different defensive principles that we're focusing on that game. Like who to key on. Constantly making sure my other teammates are, are understanding and know what we're doing. I'll ask them questions like, hey, you know what we're doing um against this player in the pick and roll. You know, what are we doing when he catches the ball where are we forcing this guy like yeah, that's how that's not just for them but it's also for me to keep it in my head
1: well alec you're off the start sub or sit hot seat thanks for playing that game with us that was a lot of fun <laughs> really good answers there but we got one more question for you as we close here but before we do really appreciate you Being so thorough and talking through all this stuff with this has been a blast for both of us. So thank you,
0: Dan Patrick. Man, I appreciate you guys. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for letting me ramble a little bit. And it's fun talking basketball for me. It's it's natural and it's something I love to do. So thank you guys.
1: Our last question that we ask almost every guest here on the show to close is: What's one of the best investments that you've made in your career thus far as a player?
0: think of like three different directions. I could take that. I could take a lab as like, you know, what's the best like thing I bought for my body or, you know, what's the best investment I made monetarily? Wow. Well, you guys want one answer? Cause I know I've been all Go over the place. Go ahead and a give, a <laughs> you can give, you can give a couple yeah You give a In terms of investing in yourself, I think that you can't ever go wrong spending money on something like a NormaTech, something that's going to massage you, something that's going to yeah. help with blood flow. You know, I think that that's a huge benefit to, I take that back a foam roller, foam roller as well. So two part there, foam roller, and then something like a NormaTech, that's like an at home, like ready available type of massage okay. tool, whatever that may be. I think you only got one body, man. You only got 10 to 15 years maybe to play if you're lucky. And after that, if you don't want arthritis and all the, you know, crap that comes with, Being a pro athlete, like you got to really, you got to be conscious of that stuff while you're doing it, so that you don't have to be conscious of it afterwards. So that's something that I'm still trying to improve as I play more years. How can I efficiently take care of my body? You know, what can I do to better improve my recovery time, whatever it may be between games, practices, that kind of stuff? I'm really proud to like talk about like my big investment that I have. You know, I'm from a small town in Illinois. Washington, Illinois is the name of it. And my dad's side of our family, they're all farmers. And you know that's what he grew up doing, and that's just kind of like that side of that's what they do. You know, is, is they farm and they corn beans. You know, they own livestock. They, that's just you know the family business over there. And probably the best investment I made was purchasing a, a large piece of farm ground in my hometown and leasing it to my uncle who farms it, and basically just pays me a rent check every year for using it. And so like you know, at the end of the day, when that loan gets paid off, like it's just income in perpetuity for the rest of my life, as long as I have somebody farming it. And that's kind of like the, you know, the boring investment strategy that I have is how much passive income can I create? So when I'm done playing, I still have a revenue stream coming in.
1: Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode with Alec Peters. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on SG plus, the free newsletter, videos, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.